Welcome to Nine to Thrive, a podcast about creating a life that doesn't suck. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. This week, Matthew Reagan talks with me about making art via coding, the work that's behind the works, and the need to be okay with failure. So today, I'm talking with Matthew Reagan of Obscura Digital in San Francisco. And we're going to take some time and talk a bit about his work and the role of creativity and community. Thanks for being on the podcast, Matthew. My pleasure. Awesome. So great. So you can start with any of those, whichever one takes your fancy work and how you got there. Or do you want to talk about creativity or community? Oh, my. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I think... Uh, a place to start might be the work itself, because I feel like it's it's a strange path that got me to this particular place. Okay, uh, great. Yeah. So I, I started uh, this kind of work first as a performer. I kind of imagined when I was doing my undergraduate work at Cal State Fresno that I was going to be a, a you know actor-dancer kind of person. And before that, I was... I was very pragmatic, and I thought I would be maybe an English professor. And I thought, no, I'll be a graphic designer. And then after that, I decided I, I wanted to return to my kind of original passions of performance. And, you know, life takes you lots of different directions. Mm. And out of that, I ended up not doing any kind of performing work at all, but I worked at an educational outreach program. And as I was kind of mulling over what I wanted to do next in my life, that's when I started to think about combining some of the skills that I had developed over time in terms of video production and as a photographer and designer with the, the kind of passionate, exciting part of the world that I wanted to return to, performance. Mm. And so that's what kind of drove me back to this overlap of performance and technology kind of centered on uh, how we bridge gaps between machine worlds and physical worlds. Okay, so yeah. So can you describe what it is you do? Yes. Oh my goodness. That's a, a lovely little piece that I edited right out there. Um, so my, uh, my official title right now is director of software or creative content. I'll say that one more time and not drop a pen. Um, <laughs> uh, director of software, creative content, or excuse me, director okay. of software, content creation. Always flip those okay. two. And the, uh, the impetus behind that descriptor is to focus on the fact that we are more and more dependent upon and use expressive software technologies as a mechanism for uh, showcasing creativity or making meaning, transforming spaces. And while there's a, you know, a very rich tapestry of tools and approaches for how to do that in a kind of traditional filmic pipeline where you build, animate, render, and do all of those things kind of offline in very carefully calculated ways. Mm -hmm. uh, the pieces that are more interesting to me, and I think more um, appropriate, not appropriate, but more compelling for the future arc of where technology and live performance is going, is to think about these uh, elements in a real-time context. And I think the best way I can kind of help describe that to people that aren't embedded in this industry full of jargon and <laughs> uh, indicators is that it's, 
it's kind of moving us away from thinking about uh, media systems or the media that is played inside of venues as being uh, like something that you might do with a DVD player and instead think of it as something that's more akin to a video game. It's mm. responsive. It's reactive. Uh, the things that you're doing have a real time implication on what you're seeing in front of you. And even if some of those pieces have been largely predetermined and mapped out ahead of time, uh, you're still free to have the agency to explore, engage, and transform uh, the world that you're in and the pieces that you're in interacting with. I love that. Uh, immediately, as opposed to carefully choreographing complex uh, mechanisms to kind of build the illusion that something is being responsive. Okay. And are these always screen-based or are there alternatives to that? Uh, we've done, as Obscura, we've done a whole mess of different installations <laughs> and events. We've done everything from AR, VR kind of experiences to strictly screen-based, you know, a traditional LCD kind of screen interactions. We've done large format projection, projection mapping. Okay. Um, we've done holographic uh, approaches. We've done kind of AR headset style mobile device interactions. So I think a lot of it is usually takes the shape of being received in screen format. But I think more compelling is the idea that the environment itself is responsive and reactive. Ah. So it might not necessarily be just just the screen. It might be the lighting. It might be the temperature in the room, the sound, huh. um, all of the things that kind of make up the immersive experience that you're having. Interesting. Is there something that ties these projects together? I mean, you have to say yes to decide to pursue these. And I know some of these are commercial and some of them are artistic and some of them are kind of spatial design kinds of things. But is there something in the proposal of them that makes your company say, yes, we absolutely want to do this thing? That is an excellent... I mean, I think that we've been... Historically, you know, all, any company is, is pragmatic at some point. They're like, well, you know, here's some weird corporate job, but we're going to have to find a way to pay the bills this month. So we got to do it. Right. And I think we're no stranger to that. I think what, what we do try to make sure that we embrace in our practice is that when a client comes to us and they have some, some notion of what they want to do, because it's not uncommon that you, your kind of first interaction starts with a, an idea already. Mm -hmm. uh, usually what we try to do is we try to back someone away from saying kind of uh, the explicit and locked tools and ex kind of expressive modalities. So, for example, someone might come and say, we want to do this mobile game that's going to work on Android phones and it's going to look just like this other video that we saw and, mm -hmm. you know, they show some video reference. And usually what we do at that point is we go, that's great, but tell us about who you are huh. and tell us about what the values of your company are Oh, and tell us about what you're trying to do and how you're trying to engage people. Oh, Because the, the solution that you're looking for might not actually be this mobile game that you're thinking about. It might be projection. It might be laser. It might be a party. It might be some other something. Huh. So let's really get to the bottom of what it is that you value and what it is you're trying to say. Wow. 
And now let's start, start to talk about how we can create an engaging and interesting, compelling experience wow. uh, that is going to get people motivated to talk about you and your brand. Wow. So that's, I think for us, one of the things that we always try to, to use as a, a mechanism for being inspired and impassioned about a job, even if it's not a particularly thrilling one on the surface, is to really kind of dig deep and understand the story that we're trying to tell. Mm. So I think that's really what we, all of us are at Obscura, is that we're storytellers in some way or another. And so we really want to have a, a real handle on what are you trying to express and how can we use our creative uh, mischief to help you achieve that thing? So has there ever been a project that you just passed on because it was just going to be too boring? Oh, boy. I don't know that. Oof. Obscura <laughs> passed on a job. I don't know that Obscura has passed on a job mm. that we felt like was just going to be too boring. <laughs> That I know of. I know there are lots of jobs that we've we've tried to spice up. Um, okay. So it might be that uh, the the amount of spice that we were adding to a proposal wasn't compatible with uh, the palette of uh, our client. <laughs> I came, yeah. I'm trying to think if there's anything that I know that we've we've just said thanks, no thanks to. Not that I know of. <laughs> Does Obscure consider itself to be an advertising agency or something else? A creative agency? Oh, well, we call ourselves a creative studio. Ah, okay. And I think that we, we use that nomenclature because it describes both the experience design, the interface design, the uh, media design and rendering and then system science software design. We kind of think of ourselves as a a one-stop shop. Right. Not exactly. But we, we imagine that part of the reason you're finding your way to Obscura is that you're looking for a group of people that are, aren't interested in piecing something together from kind of different disparate places, but are willing to really sit down and do the holistic work of understanding the entire ecosystem of the experience that you're putting together. Right. Which is back to that storytelling. Exactly. You know, I think that that's all of us feel like we're, you know, kind of creatively engaged in one way or another. And that just happens to take shape in pixels in procedural code in system design and you name it. That's what I was going to ask you next. I know it's sort of a loopy question under the circumstances, but what does a typical day look like for you? What is your typical work? Oh, boy. Um, well, a typical day kind of takes a different shape depending on where we are in our production cycle for a job. Mm. So uh, the kind of typical arc of a, uh, a job that comes in usually starts with the creative design okay. portion of it. So someone... You know, comes to Obscura or we fill out a, a call for a proposal. And we're trying to think kind of in big picture um, terms, what's the experience going to be? What's the arc of this installation event? Um, you name it. Mm. And in creative, um, in our creative phase, we're really kind of a no lines on the paper kind of place. 
we were, we give ourselves permission to dream as big and impossibly mm. as we want and not to be shackled by technology that exists or solutions that we know are going to fit a particular problem. That's really, well, that's kind of neat. Yeah. That's the time to say, okay, well, you know, dream any impossible dream you might have and let's put it on paper and let's see what resonates with the client. Right. So in that kind of creative design time, a typical day is, is mostly kind of comprised of working sessions where you're kind of trying to hammer out what's the problem, what are we trying to express, what's the kind of creative entry point into this particular uh, provocation. Mm-hmm. Then some fast sketches, uh, uh, some fast <laughs> sketches yeah. and prototypes to try and evoke the, uh, the kind of concept or idea. And then conversations with the client based on that. Mm. So during that part of the cycle, it's really about trying to make some cohesive sense of the different kind of creative avenues that you think might be worth exploring and just getting it down on paper so you can talk about it and refine it. Yeah. Once we move into schematic, schematic design is after we've kind of fought our way through creative and have a, a sense of which direction we might go. In schematic, we start to really do the kind of nuts and bolts work of, all right, how much power do we need? If this is projection, where the projector is going to live in, you know, what's the housing for them going to be? What are the environmental conditions of the, of this particular location that we need to be mindful of? Mm. Are we going to use a, a variation of the, the standard approach that we've built in software for a particular problem? Does this have challenges that we haven't yet solved yet that we need some uh, kind of a new innovative implementation and development on. Mm. So there we kind of map out like, okay, what what are our knowns? What are our unknowns? What are our unknown unknowns? <laughs> and can we try to start to put some numbers against that as kind of a rough order of magnitude to know, okay, this is like a quarter of a million dollar solution. This is a $10 million solution. Oh, wow. This is your $50,000 solution. Yeah. Right, so that when we go back to the client, we can say, okay, well, after our last round of creative decisions, here's you know, some schematic and uh, kind of truthful uh, pieces of the puzzle, I guess, or some, uh, some reference points that we have to be mindful of. And here are some dollar figures. So how do we steer this now? And that part of the schedule is really, that's a lot of number crunching, and planning, it's Gantt charts and, you know, JIRA issues and Kanban boards and all of that kind of stuff that kind of helps you figure out how you might plan, budget, and strategically achieve what you've dreamt about. I know what Gantt charts are, it's kind of timeline done out on a spreadsheet, but what's a Kanban? A Kanban board is, uh, it's used in uh, software development. Uh, quite a bit. And the, the idea is that, or I should say the big picture idea is that unlike a waterfall style approach where you try to imagine that you can plan every feature and every turn that might happen at the beginning of a project right? and say, okay, well, you know, we've got a, you know, maybe a, a good metaphor would be cooking. I always think cooking is kind of like a perfect metaphor for programming. Mm. Uh, and a recipe is kind of a perfect example of a traditional waterfall style approach. 
all the ingredients that you have to have, the order of the operations that you've got to do them in. And so right. you just kind of set yourself to the task of doing one action after the next. Right. I think it's different if you're, uh, say, following a recipe versus working on a recipe that you, you're going to use as a base, but you're going to improv a little bit somewhere in mm. there. You know, I've got this sourdough recipe, but I really want to make like a rosemary olive oil sourdough today. Mm. Or, you know, today I want to make rolls instead of a loaf. And so what that looks like from an agile standpoint or from a software development standpoint is as opposed to kind of trying to map out the whole thing at the beginning, you instead imagine what are the, what are the big milestones that we've got to hit? What are the kind of meta buckets that we've got to achieve. And then uh, from there, let's break that down further and think about the, the smaller things, the smaller kind of subtasks that are going to be in that. Right. And let's do one iteration of this process where we build just the, the clunkiest but functional version of the thing that we can. Hmm. And then from there, we're going to go back and we're going to do a round of iterations and we're going to clean up that trashy UI piece. <laughs> and we're going to throw away this function that's never actually worked that was a really great idea. And we're going to take this other thing that is, is not abstract enough and we're going to generalize it in a way that means that it's more reusable. Mm. And what that looks like from a, a planning perspective is that we use virtual whiteboards, kind of sticky boards that are broken into some number of columns. Usually the format that you see is like three or four columns where there is to do, doing, done, and then on hold. Oh, so team members kind of see this big, long list of sticky notes with their names attached to particular tasks or responsibilities. And then as you go through a, we call them sprints, through a short development cycle. Okay. That's, you know, we're going to fix that clunky UI silliness. <laughs> people can move those sticky notes from, you know, their to-do to in-progress to done. Okay, yeah. So that we've got kind of a global perspective on, you know, what's working, what's not working. As well as it gives someone an opportunity to say, actually, you know, my ability to fix this part of the UI is is dependent, it's broken, or it's blocked by this other thing that's, you know, over in the database. Okay, well, we need to prioritize, you know, some fixing some pieces of the database so that we can make some forward progress and unblock you. That's interesting, yeah. So Kanban boards are really just like a way of organizing your big to-do lists. I get it. I get it. So it's kind of like lean or agile is a style, waterfall is a style, and Kanban is a style. I get it. Or at least I think I get it anyway. I get that much of it. <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's like, it's a technique that we use. And I think this is a, true about programmers kind of generally is that most of the techniques and strategies that are used in developing software are, feel like very intuitive and embedded parts of artistic practice and creative practice. And so it's been really interesting to come from a more creatively valent space and move into a, a discipline that is a little more kind of left brain, organizational and procedurally oriented and be like, oh, you know, if we just change the rules a little bit, we could probably do some of this faster. <laughs> well, I wondered about that. What's the percentage, do you think, between the sort of programming, which while it's a creative aspect, is also fairly analytic and, I don't know, just has to get done versus maybe artistic? 
how much time or how much of a percentage is is spent in that space and how much is spent do you think in the creative space or maybe a better question is what's more satisfying or because it's all to the purpose of the creativity is the software coding piece as satisfying as the creative piece well you know the creative pieces of the software are extremely satisfying um and the <clears throat> unlocking a particular uh, problem or finding a solution in something that seemed like it was going to be an impossible ask is really rewarding. Is that right? Is really our kind of creative uh, activity, right? The the procedural pieces of that become the how do we take this you know, messy idea and turn it into a refined and repeatable process? You know, there can be some fun there. I mean, mm. that's certainly still kind of an interesting, you know, bit. I think debugging is probably, I don't think I know anybody that really is passionate about <laughs> debugging. <laughs> yeah. And the split of that is, is hard. I would say that, you know, probably almost always what I advise other designers and developers to do is to reserve at least 20, if not 25% of their time to be held for optimization and bug fixing. Okay. Yeah. So that's usually my recommendation. I think in practice, it's, it's probably, you know, in best case scenarios, it's five or 10% of your time when you're working on something that is largely derived from a successful previous project and it's mm. using tools that you you understand and have you're kind of familiar with their quirks i think the probably the most time i've spent on a project fighting with those pieces is probably like half the time mm. okay do you plan when you do this kind of work do you want to create frameworks and systems so that the next job will be able to repurpose them? Or is it really sort of so unique every time that it's artisanal for each job? Oh, you know, I think we're kind of two schools on that. You know, I'm kind of in the camp of, uh, I really want to have some good reusable foundational tools that we can take from job to job. That mean that we don't have to do that procedural uh, kind of lima beans part of it every time. Right. You know, I can't, I can't tell you how many times I've written a configuration script just to put displays in the right order and make sure that everything is flipped up the right direction and oriented correctly left to right or right, top to bottom. Right. It seems like it would be a module somehow, but then you'd have to take the time to make it a module. <laughs> exactly. So that's, I mean, I think the, the place where a lot of, it's been very interesting at Obscura, I think, in this way, because we we don't typically budget a lot of time for refactoring, that idea that you're going to make a bunch of choices that are going to be bespoke, artisanal, you know, kind of craft solutions. And how do I take that and refactor it so that it's generalized and reusable and helps solve the problem for the next job? Right, right. I mean, I guess you do it in your brain, but... Right. <laughs> but we don't usually put a lot of time on paper for that. I think what, yeah. what we do have is we do have a bunch of uh, very passionate developers and makers who don't want to spend all that time on a job. So I know that I have, I know that other people that I work with have done some of that less rewarding, but work that pays dividends when it comes to getting people to work in the creative space. Right. 
in their off time or in their nights or in their weekends. Right. Because it's, it's mad to make, to confront the same problems knowing that there's a way to solve them better, but not have the time to do that. Not have the time, of course. Right, right, right. Because you're always on deadline. Oh, yeah. And you're always, <laughs> you know, there's, you know, it's funny, there's always going to be a show. And the show is, isn't going to move. So <laughs> something has to happen. And is that kind of how you think about each project? That it's like a show? Is that the sense of it? Some stuff I know is permanent installations, some of it's arena installations, some of it's event-based, campaign-based, but because you're all a bunch of creative people to begin with and come from a lot of performing arts, is it thought of every time as if you're mounting a show? I mean, I think a lot of us certainly kind of think of them as shows. Yeah. You know, more and more, I think I'm, uh, I'm kind of slightly shifting away from kind of a pure show kind of ideology because shows typically have the you know, benefit or curse, I guess you could look at it either way, of the illusion that you're trying to achieve if you know the technical solution that you're after isn't going to do it, well then you know a stagehand in all black is going to move that <laughs> flat across the stage whether or not your automation system can do it, all right? Like we're going to find a way to, to make that happen. Right, right. Um, and I think that's really this very useful and a, a really powerful way to think about um, events that happen a few times. But when you're working on a permanent installation, I think the we still kind of embrace the notion that it is a theatrical experience for the, the user, for the uh, person experiencing the piece, but that the mechanics for the software need to be rock solid and kind of repeatable without someone peering over the back of a screen waiting to hit go just in case it doesn't work. Right, right. So there is a kind of tension there in balancing those things. Is there crossover with movie special effects? Do you knowledge share with anybody there or pick up tips or do they from you? Uh, I think there's a, a healthy bit of crossover uh, in the, the development community. We use uh, a particular tool for a lot of our development uh, practices. Mm. And I know the artists use a bunch of uh, kind of bespoke tools or not bespoke, but um, specific tools for their artistic work. And yeah. all of us are contributors to the online communities and creative communities that are related to that. Okay. So I know that, you know, there's, there are folks down in Los Angeles and out in Australia and in the UK that I'm constantly exchanging either messages with or we're commenting on one another's posts about how to solve problems that may not be mine or ours today, but are going to be our problem at some point. Right, right. It's a, a kind of interesting experience because I think one of my important in my personal practice has been both contributing to online forums and then trying to knowledge share uh, my work the best kind of abstract way that I can, right? I can't share a, a solution that a client's paid for. right. But I can, I can look at that from a mile away or from two miles away and say, okay, well, if I was all of the proprietary things aside, what are the, the big problems and big considerations that someone should have a handle on when they're going into thinking about you know, X, Y, or Z? Mm, mm. And so those are things that I try to, try to share. Yeah, yeah. 
And that brings me to the next question. There's that kind of community. What other kind of communities do you make time for? Uh, uh, these days, far too few uh, is <laughs> what it feels like. I think the, the creative developer creative development community is one that I participate in pretty heavily. Mm. Uh, and I don't teach as much as I would like to or I used to, but I do still find an opportunity to offer a workshop or two um, over the course of a year. Mm. And I think that's important because it's, uh, I, in any discipline, I think my, my experience in, at, you know, ballet bar is always what I come back to is, or, you know, if it's not your ballet bar, it's your scales, mm. right? It's no matter how long you spend mastering a technique or a practice, it is essential to return to the fundamental pieces, to learn your scales, to practice your scales, to, you know, practice your tendus or your plies, because those are the foundational elements that your practice is built on. Right. And so it can be easy to imagine that as an expert, I don't need to, to spend my time <laughs> kind of fidgeting with these, you know, little whoozy what's it, oh, scales, what's that good for? Um, <laughs> But that kind of muscle muscle memory and patterning uh, is embedded inside of the way that you think and navigate mm. uh, the tool that you're working with pays dividends. I remember there was a, a fascinating podcast, and I wish I could remember where it was, that was talking about the difference between how concert performers practiced and how an average music student practiced. Oh, Interesting. And what they pointed out was that the, the concert performer, um, you know, you pick the instrument, more likely than not, they will not practice their entire piece beginning to end. They will play through the whole piece, and then they will identify the slices mm -hmm. that are the most challenging. And then they will practice ad nauseum the pieces that are the hardest. Mm. So they'll do this kind of like, assessment path to figure out, okay, what's hard in this? Okay. These are the pieces that are hard. These are the pieces that I really have to focus on. Mm, and that's a neat way to think of it. And I think that's, you know, that's an important part of, of all of our work is, you know, practicing our fundamentals and understanding those and then really using some laser focus to say, okay, what's hard in this mm. and how do I get better at it? And I yeah. think that's also that like has great you know, application. Yeah. <laughs> and going back to your question about community, I think that's, that's one of the things I think is important to find ways to share and talk about. It's like, okay, what are the, what are the real pain points that you have on a job or understanding a particular concept? How do we demystify those mm. or find a way to talk about them or let's collectively find a solution for how to better address this part of the, the workflow right. that is hard for all of us. Right. What do you find the most rewarding about the things that you do? Oh, when it works. It's <laughs> the most rewarding. <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting because it, it recently finished a job in Chicago. We, we worked on, or I worked on a piece called uh, the Mart, which is a, a permanent projection installation for the Merchandise Mart in Chicago. Oh, wow. That is a great building. It is. It's phenomenal. It's two and a half acres worth of surface. Wow. Uh, and there is a, uh, a light show, a light show. There's a projection show that happens five nights a week, two hours a night. Oh, that's incredible. Ten months out of the year. 
Wow. Which, you know, is ridiculous on the face of it. <laughs> and this is done, just before you go on, this is done, is this an art's sake thing or is this an advertising thing? Just the city of Chicago doing something cool? This was, uh, there was a call for proposals to, um, as a public-private partnership uh-huh. between the city and a property owner. Okay, so art. Enlivened buildings. And one of the explicit wow. outlines uh, in the proposal was that uh, it could not be used for advertising. Wow, that's so cool. So this is a advertising-free projection system and showcase. And it's designed to both use art that's created by video artists. So you can make your 45-minute long video that plays on the building or your four-minute video that plays in the building. <laughs> wow. Uh, and it also has an entire generative art system. So you you seed it with a piece of artwork. And then kind of Instagram style, you pick the filters <laughs> and transitions that you want to apply. And it generates a... Um, a piece of moving animated artwork based on that seeded information. Oh, wow. And is that the public seeds or the artist seeds? Um, right now they're doing selections only. So there's a call for proposals that goes out to artists on a quarterly basis. Okay. To submit works that are either images or video. And so they've got an arts commission that's responsible for looking at all the proposals, calling through to the best, making selections, and then they're also making sure they um, pay artists for their contrib- contributions. Ooh, good. So it's a, a very exciting kind of process. It is. It's very cool. And you had to set up the system whereby those pieces can be plugged in when they're selected? Yeah. Wow. We did the whole, everything. Everything. Soup to nuts on, on that <laughs> wow. shop. I mean, we did work with an architect and a, a construction firm to have, handle all of the physical installation in Chicago. But... The, the software behind it is a, you know, bespoke custom piece of solution for that. So that's everything from the front end, uh, web access, part of that that the client sees. They interact with it through a website. And then all the back end, real-time rendering, playback, calibration, uh, and sequencing pieces. Mm. We did. Wow. That is very cool. Is there a video? Can I look that up online? Oh, yeah. Woo-hoo. You can absolutely find it. Going to enjoy it's, that. It's wild. Wow. So to get to your, your question of where does, you know, what's inspiring or what's fun about it, I think the, you know, the opening event for this installation had a crowd of like 35,000 people. Dang. And it wasn't until I emerged from the control room after the, the kind of official show had ended and the ambient show was running and was able to finally have a drink and walk around a little bit, that I, I had a chance to really appreciate the fact that we were projecting on this enormous building. Yeah. You know, it's like so big. You, uh, you know, one of the things I was telling folks about, about this is that from the Riverwalk, where the, uh, the kind of housing for the projectors and everything sits, the building's wide enough that you can't even fill, fit it in the viewfinder of your phone when you're pointing it up at the building. Wow. So it really is this enormous undertaking. Yeah. And when you're in the thick of it, you, you know, I'm grumpy about some matrix that's not correctly 
being fed to my camera, like, oh, my camera matrix is all messed up and my calibration's off. And you know, I'm like fighting with some like stupid esoteric <laughs> kind of like mathematic problem. And it usually isn't until there are actually people there watching it that I can take a step back finally and say, oh, right, like here's this ginormous thing that we've worked on that is, you know, a real treat for all of these people who have no right. sense and should have no sense of how complicated or foolish some of the hoops that we've had to jump through to make it operate are. Yeah. Yeah. You're making me think about how I go through places like museums and I don't really think about the days and weeks and months that went by when there was just little bits of gravel on the floor from trying to carve the marble or the gunge on the table from grinding the stuff to make the paints. I mean, there's really a lot behind the end product that now that it's now it's done with programmers and mathematical matrices in a booth in front of a computer, but man, all that work is still there. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, it makes me think of it, it, you know, it's fascinating. This work always takes me back to fruits in performance. I guess I think about my time as a dancer and an actor, circus performer, like you, the intention is to make it look easy. Right. To make it look effortless. Like, oh, the audience should have the, the perception that like, why was that hard? <laughs> Gosh, I could do that. Right. <laughs> And that's, you know, ideally, that's, that is what a successful implementation looks like, is to obscure the impossible pieces of it and make it seem like, well, obviously that was going to work. How well, could it not? As a longtime audience member, I have to say, my usual position is to be like, oh my God, they make it look so easy, and never to say, I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just always so blown away by the impossible stuff that somebody just did. <laughs> so a question I always like to ask people is, what advice would you give your younger self? What do you wish you had known before going in? Ooh, hmm. <laughs> what would I say to my younger self? <sighs> That's a, such a good question. <laughs> um... Learn more math. Maybe I would say learn more math. I don't know that I would have listened to that. What kind of math? <laughs> You're a rare person who says that about their adult life. Oh, well, you know, um, a lot of the work that I find these days, wow, oof, that's so hard. I mean, certainly, you know, I would say most programmers largely deal with problems that are solved by um, algebra probably like algebra one, algebra two, right? Like that's a lot of the kind of mathematic process that we, we fight with is more logic based than right. kind of pure math based. If this, then that. Right. If, you know, what, how do I manage the state? You know, how am I dealing with complex variables or embedded variables or, you know, whatever. But a lot of the, the work that goes into graphics programming, that's more like if you're interested in the simulation portions of that, it's important to have an understanding of geometry, trigonometry, physics, because you're trying to simulate the real world in a virtual world and build mathematic rules for how something ought to behave. Mm. And that's, you know, I think that's 
not as intuitive as you imagine that might be. I right. think if I was going to, and then, you know, this is like a reflection on time kind of looking back. Yeah. Because yeah. I'm like, I was not a like enthusiastic math student, I don't think. Mm. I will all own that. Um, <laughs> but I think I also, I, it's hard to approach mathematics from a position that's divorced from its application. I wondered about that. Like, if you had known it would be so useful for creation, might you then find more interest? I know I would have. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think, yeah. I'd, you know, if we're trying to study parabolas in relationship to the the arc of a bouncing ball, that's way more interesting to talk about. Like, oh, what did, you know, this arc has what shape and why, and if the decay rate of the curve is what and why. You know, there's that's much more interesting, but you know, it's it's hard when you're just like, okay, it's right. It goes back to that notion of scales. Is that the? I think a lot of us kind of experience mathematics from the perspective of the the scales portion of it and the kind of fundamental practicing portion of it, but not the application. Right. Elements. Right. So I would definitely say to my my younger self, learn more math. Mm. I think I would also say. Be, uh, take more risks hmm. because it, it's easy to, t- to kind of find yourself in a position where, and especially once you get to big budgets, once you're, I think this is one of the, the interesting things about Obscura is that it's not uncommon that we're dealing with budgets that are silly, you know, it's $7 million for something, $10 million for something else. Mm-hmm. And once a once the kind of money on the line gets to a certain tipping point, you, you don't really have a lot of wiggle room to say, "I think this might work." Hopefully, but I don't know. Mm. You really need solutions that you are are relatively confident that if it doesn't work in one kind of avenue, you can pivot and make it work in a different way. Right. And I think earlier on, I was. I should have taken more risks and not been afraid to let things just totally fail. Yeah. That's interesting. Because you you learn so much more from a colossal train wreck than you do from kind of sliding in by the skinny. Oh, your I hate that that's true, but that's so true. <laughs> right, cuz if you when you slide into third base, you kind of get this notion that like, oh, well, all my bad behavior and all my like slipped deadlines, it all worked out and it was okay. Mm. And it reinforces the fact that you could, you know, you can work that way again in the future. Right. Whereas when you really biff it, (laughs) I really, you know, it's, it's painful and it's agonizing, but it, it does require that you do a little bit more introspection about better ways to work, different ways to work. Right. And to be honest about, you know, where where did you lose your your momentum or do you lose your path and how do you make sure that you don't let that happen in the future right right and you learn you actually learn from there yeah it's like <laughs> okay put this penny in that white socket <laughs> right won't do that again will you <laughs> 
Well, Matthew, thank you so much for coming along today. This was really fun, and it's great to hear about your projects. And I'm going to put some links to your work in the episode notes. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate Matthew for being with me this week and taking the time to talk about how this kind of -of out-of-the-box magic gets made. Be sure to watch the video of the Merchandise Mart project. It is utterly stunning. That's it for this week's 9 to Thrive podcast. Be sure to visit working9tothrive.com, that's with the number 9, to access links, info, and to join the conversation. We're on Twitter, at 9 to Thrive, and Facebook, at Working 9 to Thrive. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.